We are up to chapter 5, Mishnah number 8. This is continuing the pattern that we've seen the entire chapter. This, I believe, is going to be the last installment of this kind of idea. And this is the chapter that deals with all the lists of things that were 10. And it tells us, Asara Dvarim Nivru Be'erev Shabbos Be'nashmashos. Ten things were created on the eve of the first Shabbos, so the week of creation, the week of Genesis, Be'nashmashos at twilight. So if you read, of course, the beginning of the Torah, chapter 1 of Genesis, it delineates the categories of things that were created on the six days of creation. And then day seven, the Almighty, quote-unquote, rests. He ceases to create. But at the very end of Friday, when Friday is turning into Shabbos, the last things that the Almighty created were these things, created Benashmashos at twilight. Okay, let's see what they are. Ve'elohim, and these are they. Number one, pi ha'aretz, the mouth of the earth. We read, of course, a couple of weeks ago that Korach launched a rebellion, and there was a very unusual way to dispel and to quell and to quiet the rebellion that the conspirators of this rebellion, there was a magical sinkhole that opened, and the way the verse describes it, the mouth of the earth opened, swallowed them up and closed it, uh, closed its mouth, and they were swallowed alive. So this mouth of the earth was one of the things that were created at twilight on Friday. Okay, number one, upiha be'er, the mouth of the well. And this, of course, is also things that we're reading about now in the parasha. Last week we read about the well of Miriam. The Jewish people, over the course of their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness, they were eating manna that dropped from heaven every day. But what were they drinking? They were drinking from a well. And this well had embedded itself in a certain rock. Miriam dies and the well seizes. And last week's parasha, we read about how Moshe brought it back to life. He struck the rock and he got the rock to open its mouth again, so to speak. And again, the rock emitted water. When was the mouth of the well when was that opened? That when was that when was that created? That was created Friday at twilight. And number three, Pihaason, the mouth of the donkey. This is actually in this week's parsha, Parsha's Balak. There is a very unusual interaction between Bilam, the prophet of the Gentiles, the prophet of the idolaters, and his female donkey, namely that they have a conversation. Uh, Bilam's on his way to go curse the Jewish people, and the donkey is not cooperating, and he's hitting it, and it's a very long description of what's happening. And Bilam tells the donkey, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. He gets really frustrated his donkey, and the donkey starts opening his mouth and conversing with Bilam. When was this donkey's mouth, so to speak, this one donkey in history that's able to communicate, when was that created? That was also created at Twilight. Vehakeshes, and the rainbow that was shown to Noah, created at twilight. Vehaman, and the manna. Vehamate, and the staff. The staff is a very important, uh, a very important part of the paraphernalia of Moshe. He uses the staff to do lots of the miracles of the Exodus. When was this staff created? It was created at twilight on Friday. Vehashamir, and the Shamir worm. This is a reference to a very unusual creature that Solomon used to create the temple. 
And this is a worm that had some sort of laser-like powers that it was able to cut through stone and that prevented or that avoided the the need to use any metal. Of course, you now to use metal to create the parts of the temple. Hatsav vehamichtav vehaluchos. The next three are all related to the uh, Torah and the tablets. So Hatsav is the script. Hamichtav is the inscription. Vehaluchos and the tablets. It's a bit discussion here amongst the commentaries what this means, the Tsav and the Mikhtav. We're going to go through uh, the commentary of Rabbein Yona. He explains that Hatsav, the, the script, is a reference to the way the Torah was written before it was given to the Jewish people. It was written with black fire atop of white fire. That's a very unusual way to write. When was this form of writing? When was it created? It was created at twilight. Mikhtav is the way that the letters were balanced in the tablets. Our sages tell us that the tablets were, were very, very miraculous stones because the letters were kind of hanging in the balance. There are some letters, like if you imagine, if you were to imagine etching the letter O into a stone and you're etching it all the way through, so there's a little ball in the middle that would fall down because it's not supported at all. So what happens if in the Torah there's letters that are similar and our sages tell us that it was kind of levitating midair. And that miracle was also created on Friday at twilight. The haluchos and the luchos, the tablets, they too were created before Shabbos at twilight. So that's the list of 10 themes. V'yesh omim, and there are those who say, af hamazikin, also the destructive spirits, also the demons. And Ukfuraso Shal Moshe and the grave of Moshe. As we know, Moshe's grave, the verse tells us that no man can know where Moshe is buried. There's something magical, miraculous by Moshe's grave. And therefore, that too had to be created. This miracle was a creation of twilight. The Elosh Avram Avinu and the ram of Abram, our forefather, by the episode of the binding of Isaac, there is a ram. It's a very important ram. It's a very magical and miraculous ram. And that was created on Friday. Also the tons, which need other tons to be made. And this, the Gemara actually explains that if you need tons to make tons, so where were the first set of tons made? Because if you can only make tons with a ton, the original ton that you used to make the first set of tons had to be created ahead of time. And that was the creation of God. Now, in the Talmud, it actually says that, no, there's a separate way to make a ton. You put it in a mold, you cast it in a mold, and that is the way that the first set of tons were made. So this is, again, another list of, of 10 things. It's 10, and then there are some other opinions as to maybe more things that were 10, and these are things that were created at Friday at twilight. Now, this seems like a very random, motley mix, a potpourri mix of things that were created on Friday at twilight. And it's not exactly clear what is so unique, what is so special about these things that they had to be created at that time. Now, in general, there is a very important concept called the halachic twilight. It's called bein hashmashos, halachic twilight. And the question that 
is oriented around this time, this time of the day, is when exactly does one day end and a second day begin? As we know, you read Genesis chapter 1, the day begins with the previous night. And therefore, Friday night is already considered Shabbos, it's already Saturday. So once it's nightfall, once it's nighttime, the previous day ends. So tonight, it's, it's Sunday today, and tonight already, even though on your calendar it says it's Sunday until midnight, actually once it's nighttime, halakhically, it's already Monday. And that's why Saturday night, Shabbos is over, even though it's still Saturday, for us, the way we work our calendar, halakhically, it's already Sunday. But when exactly does one day end and a second begin? And that is a quite confounding halakha question with, of course, many different ramifications. You know, is it Friday? Is it Shabbos? And there are many different things that we need to know relative to this question. So for the, for example, a very basic idea, when it is a festival, there are things that we must do, the things that we must not do. So when does Pesach end? And we could start eating chametz. We could start eating leavened bread. When does Pesach start? When does Shabbos start? Etc. And the Gemara tells us that there are various different points in the night when one day ends and a second day begins. The first point is what's called shkia, meaning sunset. Once the ball of the sun falls beneath the horizon, that is one juncture, so to speak, in nighttime. So, for example, today in Houston, Texas, at 8.25 p.m. is sunset. And at sunset, it's still kind of light outside, but the ball of the sun has moved westward and you can no longer see it. And that is one juncture, so to speak, in the nighttime. And then you have what's called Tzai when the stars are out, which means it's really dark, it's nightfall, and that comes sometime later. And this is a very complex halachic problem. Exactly when does this other point in the sand, this halachic nightfall, when exactly is it? So you should think of it just for our purposes. We think of it as somewhere between, let's say, 40 or maybe 72 minutes after sunset, there is the time of halachic nightfall. What about the time in the middle? What day is that associated with? For some purposes, we say sunset. For some purposes, we say nightfall. So after nightfall, it's definitely the next day. And before sunset, it's definitely the previous day. What about for those, let's say, let's call it 72 minutes in between? That is halachic twilight. That is bain hashmashos. And for our purposes, we have to assume the stringencies of both days. So suppose we're coming out of Shabbos. We have to assume it's still Shabbos until the end. Suppose we're coming into Shabbos. We have to begin Shabbos ahead of time, at sunset, at least at sunset. Because we don't know, is this the previous day? Is this the end day? Only the Almighty knows exactly, so to speak, when this crossover point is. For us, we have to assume the stringencies of both. That's why, by the way, if you look at, you know, Shabbos is really only 24 hours, but for us, it's it's more because we have to assume that it starts at a minimum at sunset on Friday, 
because after that it may be Saturday already, maybe Shachalachet Shabbos. And we cannot end it until Saturday night at nightfall because that period, that twilight period, that doubtful period, we have to assume the stringencies of both days. And that's why Shabbos ends up being more than 24 hours on a very practical level. Now, there's a very interesting application of halachic twilight, and that is what happens if there is a baby boy born at twilight of Friday night. So, after sunset, but before nightfall. And therefore, we would have to say, when, when is that baby born? It's either born on Friday, suppose that the, the reality is the baby is born on Friday, or maybe the reality is that the baby is born on Saturday, on Shabbos. And therefore, here's the question. When is that baby circumcised? We know a baby circumcised eight days later. So baby's born, let's say, on a Tuesday afternoon. There's no question, born on Tuesday. So when will the bris be? When will the circumcision be? Eight days later. Well, when's that? The following Tuesday. Why? Because you count Tuesday, baby's born, and then Wednesday is day two already. And therefore, day eight is the following Tuesday. What about when the baby's born at twilight? If it's twilight, let's say, Tuesday to Wednesday, when's the child circumcised? You can't circumcise them on Tuesday because maybe Tuesday is day seven and you can never circumcise a baby before eight days. Because maybe the baby's born on Wednesday and therefore the following Tuesday is day seven and they would have to wait till Wednesday. And therefore you would circumcise the baby. Maybe it's day eight, maybe it's day nine. But here's the interesting question. Baby's born on Friday night, twilight. So we definitely cannot circumcise them the following Friday, because Friday might be day seven. So you would imagine that you would circumcise them the following Shabbos. We know that circumcision overrides Shabbos. It's one of the mitzvahs that override Shabbos. My son Yehoshua was born Saturday morning, Shabbos morning, and the circumcision was on Shabbos. And even though doing this operation or this procedure is, in general, something that will be prepared by Shabbos, Torah says you have to circumcise the baby on day eight, even if that day is Shabbos. This is one of the things that override Shabbos. Well, here's the question. If the child's born on Friday night at twilight, you can circumcise them on day, on Friday, the following Friday, that may be day seven. You would not be able to circumcise them on Shabbos, the following Shabbos, because that may be day nine. And the only kind of circumcision that overrides Shabbos is a day eight circumcision. And therefore, you can neither circumcise them, not on Friday and not on Shabbos. You must wait till Sunday, which is definitely not eight days. But the only way you could override Shabbos, if it's a guaranteed day eight, if it's suspect and maybe day nine, that would not override Shabbos. So, for example, my father... He should live and be well. Was born Friday night, twilight, and his circumcision was not the following Friday, not the following Shabbos, but the following Sunday, which is either day nine or day ten, but not day eight. So this is an interesting little halachic uh, tidbit to know. This is what it's talking about. And the commentary suggests that 
when we're talking about things that were created between Friday and Shabbos, just like for us, the time between Friday and Shabbos is, we don't know, is it Friday? Is it the weekday? Is it time for the mundane? Or is it Shabbos? Is it the holy time? Is it the sacred time? And it's kind of like a fusion of these two days together. It has components of the week and it has components of the sacred Shabbos. And some suggest that these 10 things, what makes them unique is that even though they are physical phenomena, but they have spiritual characteristics as well. That's the suggestion, one of the suggestions that's given. Now, another idea, which I found very fascinating, you know, the obvious question is like this, you know, what's this Mishnah telling us? What's the idea of this Mishnah? There's so many things that we, by the way, are not told when they're created. So, for example, when were angels created? Doesn't say in Genesis. When was Gehenom created? Doesn't say in Genesis. When was fire created? Doesn't say in Genesis. There are a lot of things that are not featured. It gives us kind of a general sketch, but we don't have a full comprehensive account of when everything was created. But here we're told these specific things were created at this specific time. What's the significance of that? What's so special about that? So I saw a very interesting Rambam. Maybe this is obvious to everyone besides for me. But the, the Rambam and Rabbeinu Yonah, two of the great medieval commentators, they say something very interesting. They say that we have a principle that whatever exists in this world was created during the six days of creation. Talmud even tells us that all the souls that have ever existed and ever will exist were created during the six days of creation. What about miracles? So we know the six days of creation, all the rules of nature were set into place. But what about departures from nature? What about when the sea splits? When was that created? So I would have thought that, that was created at the time of the Exodus. When the Jewish people were surrounded by their enemies and they were going to be destroyed, the Almighty made a new miracle. But the problem with that is that there is nothing new under the sun. Everything that is present in our world has to have been created during the six days of creation. And that is the idea of this Mishnah. The miracles that have happened to our people and to all peoples throughout history, all those were created during the six days of creation. When the water was created, there was a rule established, like, like an exception, so to speak. Normally, it just flows normally, but there was an exception built in at the time of creation that under certain circumstances, it's going to split. So when Joshua crosses the Jordan, when Jewish people go into the sea, etc. And on day four, when the sun is created, another rule is set into place. The sun always rises in the east and sets in the west, etc. Every day it follows a certain pattern, unless it doesn't. Unless Joshua needs a few more hours to finish his war, and there's a rule set into place 
ahead of time that this miracle is going to happen, that the sun is going to freeze in its place to let Joshua finish his conquest. And similarly, all these miracles, like the earth opening its mouth and the donkey opening its mouth and the water coming out of the rock and the manna, the manna was all created ahead of time. It was all created ahead of time because that's the way things have to be. Even miracles were created ahead of time, which I found very interesting that there's something uniform, so to speak, about everything that was created was created already ahead of time, which by the way, for us, you know, we think of things that were invented, things that were invented recently, you know, like a computer or electricity. These things were not invented. Those forces were already present in creation. The idea that electrons are going to run back and forth and the reality of everything was already present. It was only discovered by us. There truthfully are no new things because all the new things were actually present. And we know even today, it's not possible for us to create any new matter, any new energy. We can move it. We can reshape it. We could do things with it, but there's nothing new under the sun. Now, I saw an interesting comment about why these 10 things in in particular, why were they created at the very end? Why at the very end were these 10 things created? Why couldn't they have been created maybe a little bit earlier? So one of the commentaries said something, I think, um, very, makes a lot of sense, very logical, that all these things are specific and special miracles. They're not ones that endure for forever. And they're not necessarily of, of, of universal and eternal import. And therefore, the Almighty first dealt with the things that are more crucial for everyone and for all times. And at the very end, when he was, so to speak, wrapping up creation, he did the things that were needed only for a temporary amount of time. And, of course, some of them are obvious. You know, the earth opening its mouth, that was needed once for Korach. That's not for everyone. It's not for us now. And therefore, it was created at the end. And, of course, the mouth of the donkey and the uh, the well that was only for one point in history, it's not for us today. And therefore, it is of less importance, so to speak. First, you do the things that are needed for everyone, and then you do the things that are more specific. And then he says, what about the rainbow? He says, very interesting, the rainbow is, of course, a sign that the Almighty is not going to destroy the world. Well, when is that needed? That's needed so long as humanity is not completely moral and righteous and upstanding. As long as there are problems with humanity, well, then there's a need for the Almighty to kind of make a promise he's not going to destroy the world with a flood. But what about in the Messianic times? Messiah comes, gets us all in straight, gets us all behaving properly. Everyone's righteous. The miracle, so to speak, of the rainbow being an indication of the Almighty's promise, so to speak, not to, to not destroy the world, 
that miracle is not needed. Now, again, the commentaries will say, wait a minute, it's not a miracle. You know, there's a certain refraction of light when the, when the sun is in one place and the, and there's rain in another place and that just creates a certain refraction of light. It's not a miracle per se, but the commentaries note, it's not, it's not that the concept of a, Rainbow in general is what's described here, but the fact that the, that the rainbow is an indication of the Almighty's pledge, so to speak, to us, he's not going to start the world, that's only needed until Messianic times. Comes along Messiah, gets all of humanity to start behaving properly, there's righteousness, there is knowledge that is ubiquitous, that is universal, everyone's upstanding and moral and, and just and good. In that world, we don't need this particular miracle, and therefore, it will be pushed off to the end of the wheat. The manna, of course, it's only for the nation that experienced it for 40 years. The shamir is for building the temple. The staff is for the exodus. And the three parts of, of the Torah, the strip, the inscription, and the tablets, well, he says something really, he says something really interesting. He says, that's only needed until a time of a distant future wherein the Almighty is going to communicate to us directly. I don't know what that means, but that seems to imply that the idea that we read the Torah, so to speak, and we have to kind of learn it from the outside, and we're foreigners to Torah until we absorb it, that is an aspect, that's a feature of this world, but in some time in the future, Torah is going to be much more natural. And the demons, well, they're going to be destroyed in the future because the demons are the evil forces. They're not going to be around for forever. And, of course, the burial of Moshe and the, the ram of Abraham, these are things that are specific things, and they were not done for all of humanity, and therefore they are pushed to the end. I found that to be a very reasonable interpretation of why specifically these miracles had to be etched in stone at the very end, once all the general, so to speak, uh, creations and exceptions slash miracles are set into place, then there is the time to deal with the more specific things at the very end of the week. Now, I want to zone in on maybe the most provocative part of this Mishnah, because this is something which is very, very distant from us, and that's the idea of the demons. I saw a few really interesting things I want to share with you about the demons because it's one of those uh, really interesting topics that uh, evokes a lot of curiosity. And uh, here again, it says in the Mishnah, there's something called demons. What's a demon? What does it do? What exactly does it represent? So I saw, I saw a few interesting things I want to share with you all. First of all, we're told in the Talmud that a demon shares some characteristics of humans and some characteristics of angels. It doesn't have a body, of course, like an angel, but in other aspects, it's like a human. But it's called a, a mazik. A mazik means it's a force of destruction. It's a force of damage. So what exactly does this mean? So I saw something that kind of blew my mind. And that is that the Almighty created these demons at the very end of the time period, so to speak, of creation. And he created these spirits, if you want, if you will, but they're spirits that don't have the ability to, to behave, to act. 
you know, what makes a body animated, a person animated, is that there's both the force, so to speak, of life, we would call that a soul, and there's the body, which is the implementation. And we have a demon, and a demon here is described as this force, but it doesn't have the tools, so to speak, to implement its wishes, if you will. And I saw one of the commentaries here says something really scary. He says, the Almighty created these demons on Friday afternoon. And he creates them just as a spirit. And they're defanged. Why? Because there's no body. They don't have an implement. They don't have a tool to act. However, when a person does a sin, God forbid, he's actually creating a body for a certain demon. He's like activating a demon that it was just a force, so to speak, without the ability to implement it. And now the person, so to speak, with the sin creates a reality in which that demon is now activated and mobilized and now it can destroy, which I, th- I found to be very interesting and a little bit, of course, terrifying. But in general, there's an interesting question. You know, we don't see demons today. We don't, I don't believe there's anyone in the world that has demonstrated the ability to mobilize a demon. And uh, in fact, in general, there's a lot of wisdoms that are featured in the Torah that don't exist anymore. So, for example, Torah spends a lot of time talking about the Ove and the Adoni, the necromancers, people able to call up the dead. They're able to do all these magical stuff. We call it maybe black magic. And in our world, it's totally non-existent. Yet, again, if you look in the literature, these things, the Torah claims these things exist. And how come we don't see them today in our world? You know, I, I don't think that uh, the way the Torah describes a certain, like a seance, and how Saul was able to bring Samuel back from the dead with a seance. Is that something that's legit, or is that an old wives' tale? So one of the commentaries here says a very important answer. I think it's a general answer, or it's a principle that is broadly applicable in many areas of Jewish philosophy. We know that the Almighty created the world for the purpose of allowing it to be an arena in which free will can be exercised. And therefore, the one constant is that humans must be in a state of conflict, so to speak, where the conflict, the sides are balanced. The impulse and the drive for good and bad are equal. And therefore, the Almighty is constantly managing, so to speak, if there is a tremendous force that inspires people to good, there must be a concurrent and commensurate force to compel people to bad. Has to be like that. That's why in our parsha, we in our parsha, what do we read? There is Bilam, and Bilam is a prophet on par with Moshe. That's what our sages tell us. In Israel, there never arose a prophet like Moshe, but in the Gentiles, amongst the idolaters, there did, and that is Bilam. Why? Because if there is a Moshe, there has to be an anti-Moshe. Has to be like that. 
Because otherwise, the free will is suspended. If there's just a motion, there's no equal force on the other side, well then, there's no free will. Moshe could do all these miracles. No one else can to kind of disprove him or to go in the opposite direction. There's no free will. And therefore, if there is a Moshe, there has to be an anti-Moshe. Similarly, the drive for idolatry to us makes no sense. Why would I want to genuflect in front of a figurine? Why is this such an obsession of people of yesteryear? Like we think we're so sophisticated, we're so intelligent, we're so capable, we're so, you know, we're so rational, which of course is a joke. You know, people are not rational. But we like to think that. Oh, and then the ancients, they were pagans and you know, they believed in all this nonsense and they liked to bow down to idols and that was a huge thing and paganism was rampant and it makes zero sense to us. And the reason why it makes zero sense to us is because there has to be a reduction when real prophecy ends, the drive for idolatry must end as well. Because if there's prophecy without idolatry, things are asymmetric, things are awry, things are imbalanced. And if there's idolatry without prophecy, again, the die is cast. So only when there is prophecy can there be idolatry, and only when there's idolatry can there be prophecy. Similarly, over here, once the spiritual abilities, on the good side, so to speak, are diminished, you know, there's no more prophecy, and even the lower levels of prophecies, they are diminished as well. You know, we know that there's many different gradients of prophecy. There's Baskol and all these other forces, Ruach HaKodesh and the like. And that just erodes over the course of the centuries people's ability to connect to God in an unadulterated fashion, is diminished over time. Therefore, all the other things on the other side, like the demons and all these other forces, they must go away as well. And therefore, today, the concept of a demon being a real thing to us sounds so fanciful because they no longer exist. Not because they don't exist in theory, not because they never existed, but because if they would exist, it would create an imbalance in the ability for us to have free will. Now, with regards to Messiah, the Talmud actually said, well, the verse in Scripture says that this rule that everything has to be in balance is suspended or is actually, it's, it's ended when Messiah comes. So we wonder, how is all of humanity going to come back to God? Every person is a struggle. Every person's got free will. And therefore, maybe some people will and some people won't because you have a distributed Gaussian uh, 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 scale. And some people are very into it. And there's the, there's a, the, you know, there's like a bell-shaped curve. So some people, yes, and some people, no. That's just the way it is if there's 7 billion people operating independently. But if free will is no longer present and there's just a force of good or there's such an overwhelming force of good that totally outshadows the force for bad, you could have a mass movement, all of humanity, come back to God. But today, in our world, there's no demons for that reason. In fact, there's a very controversial Rambam. Rambam says there's no demons. Now, the problem is we have our Mishnah. Mishnah talks about demons, destructive forces, destructive spirits. The Talmud has all kinds of stories about demons and what they did. Crazy stuff. And the Ram says that they don't exist. 
And this is the answer. It's not that they never existed. It's just in the world that he's writing to, it has already expired. It has gone extinct because if it did exist, it would corrupt the free will. One more idea that I want to share about this Mishnah. Every time we talk about the Ram of Abraham, I think it's important for us to mention this idea. I heard it uh, from Rabbi Jeff Walgelunter, who is a father of a former a colleague of ours here at Torch, still an adjunct uh, faculty member here of Torch, Rabbi Yaakov Walgelunter. And he gave a speech. Of course, we read about the binding of Isaac. We read it on Rosh Hashanah. Second day of Rosh Hashanah, that's what we read. And the, the horn of the shofar is supposed to be reminiscent of the horn of the ram. That's what we use a ram's horn. And our Mishnah tells us that this ram was created many, 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 many hundreds of years before it was used by Abraham. How many years? Lots and lots and lots. According to our tradition, Abraham is born in the year, it's an easy number to remember, 1948 after Adam. Well, if Abraham is 137 at the time of the binding of Isaac, so it's about 2,000 years, 2,000 years and change after this ram was created that is actually used. Now, if you look at Rashi's comment in Genesis chapter 22, Rashi seems to imply that the ram was actually trapped in the thicket for thousands of years. It's kind of a crazy thing to think about. But there's this ram created during the, during the week of creation. And for a thousand years, 2,000 years, it is waiting to be used by Abraham. And if you were to think about the perspective of this ram, you know, all, all its counterparts are able to jump around, are able to procreate, are able to climb up mountains, are able to have a good time. And for thousands of years, this ram, this one ram is stuck and it's struggling and struggling to get out and it cannot extricate itself from the thicket. And it's like, why? Why God? Why me? Why did I have to be the one that's trapped here? And the truth is, of course, that this ram played a very important role in our history. In fact, our sages tell us that every single part of this ram was used for a very critical, uh, necessary, vital uh, role of Jewish history. And this ram, the horn, is going to be blown by Messiah. So this ram has a very, very important legacy. And for 2,000 years, perhaps you would say that the ram is like, why me, why me, why me? And the lesson that he shared with his audience is that sometimes we feel trapped. And we're like, why did the Almighty put me in this terrible situation? And the ram teaches us that sometimes you're not really trapped. You're not really stuck. The Almighty put you in a position he's positioning you he's setting you up for success and you have no idea what he has he has in store for you you have no idea what he has planned for you but he is going to put you in a position where you can flourish and like this ram you may say oh i'm stuck i'm trapped but in truth you are not trapped you are positioned so that's the mishnah i think it's a very fun mishnah really a lot of interesting things going on over here 
you do get a sense that there are some deep secrets lurking beneath the surface when you read this Mishnah. I would say the number one takeaway of this Mishnah is everything, everything, even the miracles, were created, and therefore they must have been created during the six days of creation, which I, th- which I found to be a very interesting idea. And that's this Mishnah, and I thank you for listening. And this is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby signing off from the Torch Center. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. And Wolby is spelled W-O-L-B-E. Whiskey Oscar Lima Bravo Echo. Don't hesitate to send me an email with any questions, with any comments, and with any feedback.